Well, if you are a beach lover, North Carolina beach lover in particular, like I am, you also may be aware that our beaches are in danger. Uh, Every year, there is more and more erosion that takes place along our beaches. Uh, They are spending tens of millions of dollars, in some cases, to pump more sand onto the beach so that it will give us another 10 years or longer of beach access and enjoyment. There are some places on the North Carolina beach, actually, where houses are collapsing already, where the water is washing up underneath the houses and they are just tumbling down underneath themselves. And it's a vivid reminder of what Jesus tells us when he says, do not build your house on the sand. Build your house on the rock. You see, we need, it's a reminder that we need something more permanent, something that will last something that will endure. And as we come to our text today, we're reminded similarly when it comes to our joy, when it comes to our peace, we need something that will last. All week long, we have fallen into temptation perhaps and tried to fill our little cups with joy in different places. Some, some good, some good gifts from God, but we may end up making the gift, the ultimate thing, rather than the giver. Or we have turned to the fleeting pleasures of this world to fill our cups with joy and peace. I want to proclaim to you this morning that Jesus Christ is our source of joy and peace. This is what you need. Hear it again and again. This is the foundation you need for your joy, for your peace, for your forgiveness. It is not in the things that the world has to offer. It is in Christ Jesus. So in this passage, we see that Jesus explains to to the disciples these enduring privileges that will be theirs. They will belong to them, and no one will be able to take them away from them. They come through the Holy Spirit, and they are everlasting and enduring. Despite what we face, despite challenges, despite tribulation, These privileges belong to the disciples of Jesus Christ. As we look at verses 16 through 33, we may have trouble determining uh, the structure. what What is the overarching theme of this passage? And I think it would help us to link this passage with the previous passage that we looked at last time, verses 4 through 15 in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only because they're side by side, right? Sometimes there could be a break where uh, the author or Jesus turns to a different topic. But you'll notice in particular, verse 17, where uh, Jesus is saying, uh, or actually the disciples are still confused about what Jesus is saying. What does he mean a little while and you'll see me? A little while and you won't see me. And what does he mean by you're going to the Father? That connects back to verse 10, which gives us a clue that he's still talking in large measure about the work of the Holy Spirit, that these passages are a unity. We see repeated themes of hostility and suffering, of tribulation. We have the words repeated, I have said these things to you for your consolation, for your comfort. And this passage then is a continuation of the previous in which Jesus explains the work of of the Holy Spirit, and these are also a conclusion of the words of this this great discourse before Jesus 
makes his way to the cross, his next words will be to the Father for his disciples. So I want to structure our sermon this morning by answering two questions. The first is this. Which return of Jesus is being spoken of here? He, he outlines some privileges and he says you, you'll get these at a certain time. The time's coming when you'll get these. What is this time he's talking about? Consider verse 16. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And a little while you will see me. We might think that you'll see me no longer is death. But then we might think but because I go to the Father indicates Maybe death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus going to the Father. So what then is that you will see me again referring to? Or look at verses 20 and verses 22. Their sorrow will turn to joy when they see him. When is he speaking about here? The resurrection, the second coming, maybe something else? In verse 23, he says, on that day, and he also says, when you see me. He, he's equating those two times. On that day, when you see me, you will ask nothing of me. Probably not post-resurrection then. They, they did have a lot of questions then. Perhaps the second coming then, when our knowledge will be complete. Notice verse 25, he's speaking of the hour when Jesus will speak plainly to the disciples about the Father. Post-resurrection? When, uh, will we need that on the last day when he returns? Will we need him to explain to the Father to us? When is he speaking of? And finally, verse 26, he speaks of in that day, and he equates it again with the hour, in that hour. In that day which is coming, you will have direct access to the Father in Jesus' name. Doesn't sound like post-resurrection appearances, but neither does it sound like the second coming. So what makes the best sense of these verses? Well, many of the Greek fathers said it was the resurrection appearances. After Jesus rose from the dead, it seems to make sense of how the disciples received joy and peace, right? You would, they were in utter despair as Jesus was in the grave. And when they found out he had risen from the dead, they were confused at first, but then it would have given them great encouragement, great joy. Jesus is alive. That in itself gives us joy. And some have credited this, the resurrection, as what changed the fearful disciples into the bold and courageous disciples of Acts. Now, I think there's some of that going on, but there may be something more. This passage also refers to knowledge. Is it true that the disciples learn more about Jesus during the resurrection? It is true that they learn more about Jesus during the resurrection appearances. He taught them how all the scriptures point to me ultimately, are fulfilled in me. But does this account for the fullness of knowledge that the disciples Jesus promises will have? Others have taken the approach that these refer to the second coming of Christ as Jesus returns once and for all and establishes his kingdom. Augustine took this view, at least in some parts of this passage. The words, you will see me, seem clear if taken literally that they would refer to the resurrection or the second coming of Christ. And then taken along with this end times imagery of a woman in labor giving birth it seems like perhaps it's talking of the end times 
However, that would also imply that these promises won't be fulfilled until the last day, which is true enough in an ultimate sense. But can we say that none of them are fulfilled? I want to propose to you a third option. It's not original to me, of course. This, uh, I've learned a lot through reading over the past few weeks. But some would argue that this return of Jesus, this coming of Jesus, this seeing Jesus refers to the coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God within us. This third option then, the return of Jesus mentioned in these verses is described when Jesus dies, is resurrected, ascends into heaven, and then pours out his spirit upon his disciples. But what about seeing Jesus then? How do we make sense of that? Well, earlier we read that if one has seen Jesus, he has seen the Father. And we wouldn't take that in an exactly literal sense. We, they saw Jesus' physical form, his physical faith, face, but they, he was speaking of something different, of seeing the very character an image of God in human form. So too, here, Jesus, seeing Jesus isn't referring to seeing him physically, but seeing him with the eyes of faith and knowing him in a, a greater, more comprehensive way through the Holy Spirit. This also seems to solve the, the seeming contradiction between verses 10 and 16 when he says, they will not see him when he goes to the Father. And then in verse 16, they will see him because he's going to the Father. It also makes better sense of the disciples receiving a joy which cannot be taken away. Intimacy with the Father, like they had never had before. Knowledge of God, not just knowing about him, but knowing him and receiving peace even in the midst of tribulation. It's only through these brothers and sisters. It's only through the Holy Spirit that the disciples are changed and we will be changed. This is what, this is, what is the foundation, the, the origin of our joy and our peace and our faith in Christ. So then, that leads to our second question. What are these benefits which will come at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What privileges belong to these disciples and to all who call upon him in faith. Well, first, as a disciple of Jesus, you have a joy which no one can take from you. We see that in verses 20 through 22. Now he says, you will weep and lament. And that is a phrase, terms often used for someone dying. Some of the most bitter funerals I've been to are when family members can't contain themselves because of the turmoil within them at losing their loved one. And they weep audibly. They lament. And Jesus is saying, this is what you will do. You will weep and lament. And he says, the world will rejoice. Notice these contrasting uh, joys, these contrasting reactions to the death of Jesus Christ. It made me think of uh, the, the munchkins in the Wizard of Oz who rejoiced when the wicked witch of the West was crushed and died. And then at the end, the other witch, I think I'm getting it right, the, the witch dies and they, the, everybody rejoices, they cheers because their foe was defeated. And in the same way, the world 
who hates God, who hates Christ, will rejoice because their foe has been defeated. But your sorrow will turn to joy. You will weep and lament, but your sorrow will turn to joy. A contrast between the cruel rejoicing of the world and the enduring joy that the disciples will have. Now notice this image that Jesus gives to help explain their sorrow, which will turn to joy. It's the image of a woman giving birth. She has sorrow and pain. And yet, she is able to forget her anguish because of the joy in having a little baby in her arms. He applies this and says, So too then, you will have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This in itself is an amazing, amazingly powerful illustration of how the disciples would be changed. They would receive joy after Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. And yet, there may be more here than just an image. John, in his working of this gospel, often hides things behind the surface. He often has things welling up from underneath, pointing back to the prophets of the Old Testament. And I think he may be doing that here also. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 26, 17 through 18, we have this image of the people of God who are crying out in anguish as a woman in childbirth, waiting, quote, for a little while for the Lord himself to come and establish his kingdom once and for all. And then in Isaiah 66, 7 through 10, we see labor pains leading to rejoicing with the coming of the Lord. With these illusions, we might understand this in a more eschatological sense, in a messianic sense. In those passages, it's all condensed into one. But here, as we are are learning more from the Scripture, we see it spread out over a greater period of time. Of time. And so we might say then, this image points to the fact that his disciples will wait for the fullness of the coming of the Lord who will establish our joy once and for all. But there also might be a little bit more behind this, behind this image. Now, literally in verse 21, it says, uh, She rejoices because a man has been born into the world. And you'll remember where this increased pain in childbirth comes from. It comes from the curse in Genesis 3.16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then as we continue on and see Adam and Eve receive that curse and then go forward, In chapter 4, verse 1, Adam and Eve have a child, and she rejoices, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Some have thought then that what we see in this passage is not just an image of sorrow giving way to joy, but an expression of the dawning of the messianic age. As joy triumphs over sorrow, and the offspring of Eve is bruised by the serpent as he crushes the head of the serpent by his suffering by his death 
by his resurrection from the dead and pouring out his spirit on his people. And this is what brings the privilege of deeper joy in Jesus Christ that can never be taken away. Consider the joys that you've had over the last weeks and months. Good joys. Think, think over the years, throughout your life. What are those things that have real lasting joy? Maybe the birth of a child. Maybe your marriage day. Maybe something a loved one said to you that just penetrated your heart and you knew it would just stay with you forever. And these are amazing gifts from God. And, and what should blow our minds this, is that none of these things ultimately can touch the joy that we will have in Jesus Christ on the last day. That these are small little appetizers for the main course. That these are little tastes of the joy that we will receive when we see Jesus face to face. Nothing can take that away. And this promise, brothers and sisters, is for you because the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. You have the deposit. You have the guarantee. You have the joy which is yours in Christ. We have a joy which can never be taken away in verses 23 through 28. We have an intimacy with God without any barriers. In verses 23 to 28, two things come to the fore. Knowledge of the Father and access to the Father. And these are both related to intimacy with God. Knowledge of the Father and intimacy and access with the Father. Look at verse 25. In that day, he's saying, He will speak plainly to them about the Father which is the same time as verse 26, in that day when they will pray to the Father in Jesus' name. So these two ideas are connected. Jesus will tell them plainly about the Father through the Holy Spirit who was to come and guide them into all the truth and teach them all things. In other words, they would have more knowledge of who Jesus was and is. They would have more knowledge of God after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit upon him than when they had when he was there physically with them. He would teach them about this, how the scriptures spoke of him, yet their knowledge would still have been coming from the outside in to them. It would still be weak and insufficient, but when the Holy Spirit came into them, he gave the disciples a more direct knowledge of God, springing up from the inside, if you will, and giving them a fuller and more complete understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and the things that he spoke. And this is a part of what I mean then by unhindered intimacy. We don't just know about God. We don't, we don't just read facts about him on a sheet of paper. If you are in Christ and the Spirit dwells in you, you know God intimately. He's inside you. How could you know him anymore? How could you have him any more than you already do? You know his character. You know his identity. You know who he is. We actually know God experientially. And it doesn't stop there, the intimacy. We see also how this affects our access to God in prayer. Verses 23 and 24. 
and verses 26 through 28. The emphasis, notice, is on asking the Father in Jesus' name. Jesus says they won't ask him for anything. Rather, they will ask of the Father in his name. And it will be granted, he says. Now notice something else. Jesus connects the asking and receiving with a fullness of joy. There can often be, and there's, I'm sure there's something to it, but there can often be kind of a spirituality in saying something like, I just want to come to, before God without asking him for anything. I just want to thank him. I just want to praise him. There is, there's some value in that. And yet, notice we are instructed, commanded to ask, and this, is, this is, will be a means to bringing you fullness of joy. He's saying, ask me. In my name, come to me and ask me, and you will receive it, and it will result in fullness of joy. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't feel guilty for ask. Ask boldly, confidently, in Jesus' name, according to Jesus' will, for Jesus' glory, and you will receive it. Feel guilty for asking for the wrong things, but you have the Spirit inside of you, instructing you what you should ask. You have the scriptures which reveal to us the will of God and what brings him glory. Ask boldly in his name. Verse 26 again emphasizes asking the Father in Jesus' name. In other words, it won't be like you have to ask Jesus to then in turn go ask the Father for you, like a a middleman or a go-between. You have access to the Father. The last time we went and bought a car, we went to the car dealership. It's not like this in all of them, but we're doing our dealings. We're doing some negotiations, and I ask for this particular discount, of maybe a few thousand dollars off, and he says, oh, I'll need to go ask my manager about that. And off he goes to this mysterious man behind the curtain and to ask if he can do that. So he's our go-between, and next time I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to have Rachel my wife be outside somewhere and when he comes back I'm going to say hold on a sec I need to go ask my manager (laughs) if I can take that deal or not (laughs) we might think of our relationship to the father like that we Jesus is our mediator right so we we have to go to him first we kind of let him then take it to the father but Jesus is saying that his mediatorship is different than that that it is so amazing and powerful and effective that in a sense we have been ushered into the very presence of God and we can speak to him freely and he hears us and answers us. No longer hindered by the curtains to enter into the holy places of God by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, you know the Father and you have access to him in Jesus' name. And this is your privilege, brothers and sisters in Christ. Privilege like no one else has. And it gets even more amazing. Here's why you can go to the Father with boldness and confidence. Verse 27, because the Father loves you. The Father loves you because you have loved him and you have believed in Jesus Christ. Through faith, which is even created by the Spirit, you have all the love of God the Father for you, and you can ask Him, and He will answer you. 
One commentator says it like this, the Father sees the Christ, in the Christian Christ himself, who is at the same time the object of their faith and love. How do you approach the Father in your times of prayer? Now certainly there's an element of reverence in all we come before the holy God, element of love and joy. Is there an element of, does he love me? Will he receive me? Will he answer me? Brothers and sisters, go to the Father with full confidence because of Jesus Christ and his work for you. His very spirit lives inside of you. How would he reject his own spirit inside of you? But we also have this privilege, finally, verses 29 through 33, a peace unhindered by tribulation. His disciples think they understand. They said, Jesus said, I will speak plainly to you, no longer in figurative language. And they say, ah, here he is. He's speaking to us in plain language. We finally get it. Now they know. Now we believe. It's like that friend of yours. You're explaining something. They say, oh, now I get it. And they go on talking. You're like, no, you don't get it. But Jesus sees this as a similar sort of faith as what they have demonstrated before. A faith which isn't quite sufficient. It's not quite there. It's a bit too brash and proud like Peter when he said he would lay down his life for him. And Jesus calls them on it. He says, now do you believe? Oh, you believe now? Verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come. When you'll be, you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. This then is not the shepherd who leaves the sheep all alone, but the sheep who scatter and desert their shepherd. Their faith may have grown throughout their time with Jesus, but what they really needed was not Jesus with them, not even Jesus back from the dead, but the Holy Spirit of God inside them. He's the source of your faith too. This is why you have faith. The Spirit inside you. It is through Jesus' solitary suffering, it is through his companionless crucifixion that Jesus actually conquers the world, giving peace to his disciples in the midst of their own tribulations. This peace, this uh, salvific peace, this peace of salvation, of peace with God, of peace no matter what, you face. That means everything in an ultimate sense has been made right. It is guaranteed. Comes through Christ's work on the cross and applied by the Holy Spirit. This doesn't dim diminish the difficulties you will face. Even sometimes more than difficulties. Terrible trials. The peace that Jesus gives in this life isn't a removing of the suffering from us, but it is a being with us and for us in the midst of our tribulations. But it won't be easy. This is, it's not a cakewalk, right? This is a pilgrimage in, throughout this life. This is not our home. This is not where we should expect to have happiness without any suffering, without any sorrows, without any tears. 
Peace comes from Jesus' work in the indwelling spirit, but there is a, a call from Jesus, a command. You see it there at the end. He says, have confidence, have courage, take heart. And sometimes self-confidence can be a good thing. It can help us boldly do things we didn't think we could do. It can stretch us beyond ourselves. But there is a greater sense of confidence we can have. And the basis of our confidence, Jesus says, is this. I have overcome the world. Now there is a sense in which we can have a sort of inner confidence which comes from God because He dwells in us. We have a confidence that Jesus has overcome the world and the Spirit has indwelt us and as a result, everything has changed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has overcome the world. Enjoy these privileges. Soak them all in. Enjoy them and know that these, in an ultimate sense, don't come from anything else in the world, but only in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we trust even now that you are creating faith in our hearts. We're not working it up by ourselves, but you are doing it in us through the preaching of your word by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would help us to continue meditating on these things, considering these things, soaking them in, so that we would know and remember the origin of our faith and our joy and our peace and our knowledge of you and that we wouldn't go after other foundations of our joy and peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.